I'm going to be talking about uh, part two of the Jesus habits here this morning. And it's actually part two of the habit of seclusion. And uh, there's more on this that I wanted to say that time would allow me to say uh, last Sunday. So uh, part two will be the uh, habit of seclusion. And then Pierre is going to be preaching next Sunday and kind of carrying this whole theme of uh, Jesus and his habit of, of really walking with God and getting time alone with God. One of the authors that we were reading, uh, I like how they referred to it. They, they referred to it as simply the God habit. The God habit. And uh, certainly uh, that kind of is a big umbrella over what I will be talking about in part two today, as well as what uh, Pierre will be talking about next Sunday. I want to start in a rather interesting place. It's over in the book of Exodus, chapter 16. And it's really important you appreciate the setting of what we're about to read. The setting is that God has just called out his people Israel out of the enslavement of centuries in Egypt. They... uh, We're going to the promised land, but it was going to take them, because of their sin, quite a while to get there and possess it, 40 years to be exact. Now, many scholars I've heard believe, as I've shared before, that there were about one and a half million Jews who were called out of Egypt on that great Passover One and a half million men, women, and children. And you can only imagine trying to sustain such a people in, of all places, a hostile, arid, barren desert. And it's in this setting, upon them being called out as they embark on their first months of the journey to the promised land, if they start, get this, grumbling about how good they had it in Egypt, and how there was food aplenty there, and how they're in the desert now, and life's not so great. And we pick it up there, and with the Israelites grumbling in Exodus 16 and verse 4, and I want you to think about what we can learn from this, relevant to the habit of seclusion. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. In verse 7, Moses tells Israel that it's in the morning that they will see the glory of the Lord. You know, I believe it's where we can see the glory of the Lord as well in our life. Well, verse 13 says, That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, 
It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did what they were told. Some gathered much, and the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. Can you even imagine that? They kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Now, there's only one conclusion that you can really get from this passage of Scripture. And the conclusion is simply this. God was training a new habit into Israel. God was training, if you will, them to daily feed from Him. Now, after 40 years, you would think that would be certainly second nature for the people of God. He provided manna in the morning. And I want to really emphasize this. Notice the very first thing they did each day. Not the second, not the third, but the very first thing they did each morning was to gather the daily manna, the daily bread, before it grew hot, and before it melted in the sunlight. I've lived in the desert for 20-some years, and it gets hot really quickly in the desert. So you have to get up quite early to gather the manna if you're Israel. And you know, it's interesting, but we're told that they could only gather very purposely, I believe, Only one day's worth of manna. Because the next morning, they would be required to feed themselves from the Lord and depend daily on Him again. The only exception was the Sabbath, the seventh day, where God miraculously allowed the manna to keep for two days. I don't know how you can miss it. But some didn't listen, and it became full of maggots and began to smell. I think there's a real lesson in here for us this morning. And the lesson is, God expects us to partake daily of our food from Him. 
Just as Israel was trained at their very concept, their conception of a nation, God is expecting us to be trained as well. I referred uh, last Sunday to our many new disciples in the campus ministry in particular. And, uh, you know, welcome. And, you know, as, uh, as Bruce Willis said as he threw the body out, welcome to the party, pal. But the, the bottom line is there, there is nothing more essential to learn in your first few days as a young Christian, really in the process of studying to become a disciple than to daily, on your own, feed from the Lord and walk with Him. Verse 15 of Exodus 16 said, It is the bread the Lord has given you. Interesting, in Matthew 4, in verse 4, Jesus quotes Scripture, and He says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of of God. I got a question for you this morning. What's your spiritual diet look like right now? You know, uh, well, when I grew up, people didn't really uh, didn't really put much thought into what you ate. If you wanted cotton candy for breakfast. Uh, no one would look down on you. You could have cotton candy for breakfast. But, but I cannot tell you now the volumes of books and internet sites and billions upon billions of dollar industry that the diet industry is. What you eat, how you eat it, what time of day you have fruit, how heavy should the protein be. Isn't it exciting that we can eat bacon again? Man, a few years ago, it was pretty safe to be a pig. Now you better run. We can eat eggs again. And our diet is all over the place. I want to know how healthy, how diet conscious are you spiritually in what you feed yourself? How balanced is that diet? Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If breakfast truly is, as they say, the most important meal of the day, I will tell you for a disciple, that is even more true. And yet a lot of us, let's just be frank, think we can skip breakfast. And it's not going to affect our nourishment. Habits are things that, as you know, we learn through repetition. And eventually we do it unconsciously, or at the very least with very little effort, when it truly is a habit. I am told by a study that came out from a major university that it takes, on average, 21 days of repetition of doing the same thing, whatever that is, over and over and over again, 21 days before it begins to become a habit in your life. You know, this habit was so important that God 
said, forget 21 days, I'm going to embed it 40 years. 40 years. You think it became second nature to them after they got to Canaan? God had them gather manna every day. Obviously, the message for us is, first, we form habits. And then habits form us. How are your spiritual habits this morning? Last Sunday, we looked at Jesus' own example in Mark chapter 1. Let me refresh our memory in verse 35 and then read a little further this time. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. You know, the first hour of your day for a disciple is by far the most important. Before the morning even got going, everyone was looking for Jesus. Sound like your day, honestly? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're a mother of four, no doubt you feel that way when you get up in the morning. There may be a brief calm, and before long, everyone is going to be looking for you. You may be heading out the driveway, commuting to work, and your phone may already be ringing. Are your text messages blowing up because work is already started, and they're already looking for you? You know, seclusion is not just a nice practice. It is a life and death essential for the spiritual life of a disciple. And there are a lot of enemies to this habit that Jesus had of taking time to get away and to get with God. Let me tell you what some of the enemies I thought of to seclusion are. Number one is just guilt. I will feel guilty if I don't do these other needed things. Sound like Martha? Martha, Martha? You know, you've got to just give yourself permission to reprioritize in this new season your life. How did that go this week? A second enemy of seclusion is busyness. I just don't have time to get with God each morning. You know, take that up with a man called Daniel, if you would. Daniel, who ran the entire Persian kingdom, and yet still found time three times a day to seclude himself in prayer to God. How about the little boy with the five loaves, the two small fishes, 5,000 
hungry people waiting to be fed. You know, it's amazing what Jesus did, isn't it, with those five loaves and two small fish in John 6? It says that after everyone ate from that and was satisfied, they collected 12 basketfuls of leftovers. What's the point? Maybe if we think we're too busy, we just need to think about John chapter 6 and realize that we will end up with more time if we give God our first rather than give God our leftovers. Seemed to work there. Martin Luther, I think, really believed it. I've shared this quote often, but he says, I have so much to do today that I think I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I think he had deep convictions about God being able to multiply our effectiveness and what we accomplish in that day if we don't give him the leftovers. We've got to stop using busyness as an excuse. And then there's ego. Ego gets in the way of seclusion. I can't afford to be away from what's going on. I'm really needed. Boredom. Yeah, let me just lay it out. Boredom keeps people from secluding with God. I'll be, I'll be so bored if I read something. If I pray. Man, I don't know what you're reading, but you may need some help. Because I'm anything but bored when I read the Bible. Uneasiness. I won't know what to say. I won't know what to do. We're going to help you with that today. Laziness is another enemy of seclusion. It's a big one, guys. Let's face it. I I just don't want to make the effort. I want to veg. I want my time in the morning. And then people, finally, of all things. You know, what will others think? Everyone was looking for Jesus. Jesus easily could have let people and what they thought of him keep him from secluding. Those are enemies that we're going to have to do battle with if we're going to, in this new season of life here this summer, rearrange our priorities and create the Jesus-God habit that we're talking about here with the habit of seclusion. And let me, uh, let me spend the rest of my thoughts today on some real practicals of really what it's going to take to develop this habit in our spiritual lives. The first one is let's talk about the importance of time. You know, when it comes to the Jesus habit of seclusion, you're going to have to calendar it. If you don't, The urgent will every time take the place of the necessary. I find if I'm going to have time with the Lord in the morning, it really starts the night before. Because what I do the night before greatly impacts the first hour of my day the next morning. What are you willing to give up 
to eat of the bread of life. A late night TV show? Some fellowship? I got a saying, and that is, nothing really good most of the time happens after 10 o'clock at night. And so if you're up after 10 o'clock at night, then probably not much good, productive is really happening. I try to set my clothes out as I did last night, the night before. So I don't have to really think about finding my belt or what I'm going to wear. I uh, make sure I go to bed early enough so that I can wake up while it was still quite early in the morning. And I've got my body trained now, and it trains pretty easy. It's amazing how easy your body can train that I'll wake up at the same time every morning whether an alarm is set or not set. I actually sleep with my blinds up because I find it much harder to get up in the morning if my room is dark. And the bottom line is, the importance of time is really dictated by putting God first in your life. I've tried for many years to, if you will, work God into my schedule. And the devil made sure I never found time to do that. In Psalm 5, in verse 3, it says, Lord, every morning... You hear my voice. Every morning I tell you what I need. And I wait for you to answer. I believe I can prove biblically that to seek God early in the morning, first thing in the morning, is wise. I simply look at the example of Jesus, and I know that's who I'm supposed to imitate. I look at the psalmist here in Psalm 5, and it's apparent every morning he has his routine and his time of seclusion, his time in prayer. And I really think our model should simply be the earlier, the better. The earlier, the better. You may not have 45 minutes to spend in Bible study. But I'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who doesn't have 10 minutes. You say, 10 minutes? What can you do in 10 minutes? I could change my whole mindset, my whole focus in 10 minutes. And if you're too busy, or if you don't think it's important enough to have time with the Lord first thing before you start your routine of the day, then I will tell you, start with 10 minutes. Just give God 10 minutes each morning and see consistently what that doesn't do to impact your day and your heart. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes... For the day, rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving it all back, in listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, 
Letting that other, larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. You know, in real estate, one of the things that I learned that was really shocking to me, when you hire a life coach, a business coach, is they tell you the very first thing you do when you walk into the office that morning is you have a spiritual time. Whatever that means to you. If it's reading your Bible, praying, meditation, you set your mind for 15 minutes that morning. And then the second thing they have you do, and every coach I hired was consistent with this, is you start prospecting. Now that shocked me because they were having me start phone calls at 8 o'clock in the morning saying, do you know anybody who is planning to buy or sell a home that I might be of assistance to? My first thought was probably your first thought. Who wants to get a call like that at 8 a.m.? But the mindset was very simple. If you didn't do it in the morning and block two hours from 8 o'clock to 10 or two and a half hours to 10.30, then they understood you weren't going to prospect that day. Because all the other things, the files, the current transactions going on, were going to shove all that out, and you weren't going to prospect because every real estate agent hates to drum up new business. I love selling homes. I love taking people out to show property. I loved riding on property. I hated working the phones and cold contact to get new business. First things first. The importance of time is huge, what we do with that first hour each morning. And then there's the importance of place. You know, I think sometimes you might want to just experiment with different places. Try different rooms. Go outside. Drive somewhere peaceful. Take a walk. You will discover that different places meet different needs. Jesus went up on a mountainside to pray. Luke 11, verse 1 says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. We talked last week in Luke 22, verse 39, how he went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Even Paul and his companions, the disciples in Acts 16, imitated Jesus in that. And in verse 13 it says, On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. They went out and secluded. Have you found your seclusion place? I was talking to a brother who said, you know, I had one before I moved, and I've yet to find my new one. And I'm going to go out this week, and I'm going to hunt for that important place. And then finally, there's the importance of a plan. In real simple terms, you've got to decide what to study. It may be topical. It may be a great character study. 
you want to grow in faith, study out Abraham. If you want to grow in more effective ministry, study out Timothy. If you want to know about perseverance, study out Job. If you want to learn how to really be single-minded and effective, look at the life of Paul. Study whole books is a great way to go. If you want to grow in your joy and gratitude, Philippians is a great place to study. If you need advice on parenting or on life or on marriage, Proverbs might be a place to consider. If you want to get more emotionally connected with God, how awesome are the Psalms. But you've got to decide what your approach is going to be. And pray about your study before you study. Each time I open the Bible in the morning to study, I begin with prayer. And I pray to be led to the Scriptures I need to study. I pray to see areas in my life I need to change. I pray to gain conviction needed to make lasting change. I usually start with a short section of Scripture. A few paragraphs of a chapter. And I read it over and over again, usually four, five, six times. And then I do something interesting. I read it out loud. The Bible was actually written to be read out loud. And something changes by the time I'm reading it out loud, my fifth or sixth time. Then I go back and I really start breaking it down sentence by sentence of that section I just read. And I usually have a notepad or a quiet time booklet with me, or I have certainly highlight markers. I have Bibles at home that would make Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat jealous. <laughs> I write in the margin. I, I get in there and roll up my sleeves. And I've shared these before, but I want to share them again. I have questions that I apply to that sentence, to that section of Scripture. Number one, is there an example for me to follow? Is there a sin for me to avoid? Is there a command here for me to obey? What does this passage teach me about Christ or about God? Is there a promise for me to claim? And if so, what's the condition to be met? What in this passage do I need to pray about today? And finally, is there a difficulty here for me to explore. I learned in my infancy in Christ, that's how I could have a good Bible study. A great Bible study. And I really, really want to encourage you to imitate me in this as I try to imitate Christ. I spend time memorizing Scripture, a lost art, I might add. I quote scriptures in my mind today that I learned my first year as a Christian. And I would write them on a three-by-five card. One side I would write the verse, the other side I would write the reference, and I would carry those in my pocket to class. And when I had a moment of free time between classes and I 
was waiting on something, I would pull those out and I would put Scripture to memory. And I could quote you right now probably 50 Scriptures that have served me for victorious Christian living. The writer of Psalms in 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Have you hidden God's word in your heart? And then finally, I believe meditation. Meditation time in seclusion is huge. Psalm 63 says, I think about you upon my bed and I meditate on you in the watches of the night. In Psalm 119, 97, he says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Christian meditation is huge. Christian meditation, very simply, is the ability to hear God's voice and obey His Word. It's that simple. I wish I could make it more complicated for those who want things difficult. It involves no hidden mysteries, no secret mantras, no metal gymnastics, no ecclesiastical flights into cosmic consciousness. The truth of the matter is that the great God of the universe, the creator of all things, desires our fellowship. And so when was the last time in your quiet time, in your time of seclusion, you just sat there and thought and meditated on how awesome heaven is going to be? When was the last time you sat in meditation about the value of a single soul? Or you had time just to meditate on angels. I did a study several years ago on angels in the Bible. Got three great sermons out of it, I think. And there was so much time just contemplating and meditating. And it made me so keenly aware of the spiritual world that is even going on in this auditorium as I speak. We need to meditate when we have times of seclusion on the great and timeless themes of the Bible. I close with this thought. This is not just a nice exercise or a good habit to form in your life. As I tried to share with you last week, it's going to determine whether we live or whether we die spiritually. If you refuse to feed yourself, if you refuse to take time to eat from the bread of life, you will be eventually so spiritually malnourished that all the great discipling of the church and the great community of the church won't keep you faithful. You've got to train yourself daily. Just as the Israelites did in the desert for 40 years to daily feed from the Lord. In Luke 22, my final scripture, it says in verse 31 that Jesus comes to 
Peter, at that most terrible hour of his betrayal, as he's facing the cross, and it says, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift you all as wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fall. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Satan is asking to sift us all as wheat. I'm grateful that Jesus prayed for Peter. But eventually, Peter was going to have to pray for himself. And you know, Jesus was ready for this horrific hour because he had trained himself for 40 days in the desert. There's that number 40 again. 40 days in the desert. And so when the hour came, he was ready. You know, the Bible says that the devil left him until a more opportune time. And that opportune time had come. I shared with you that we had an issue with snakes. And I shared with you two weeks ago that I was going to be ready for them. I went out and I got my handy beheading tool. And I said I was going to put it on my back porch, and it was right there. There's a picture of the blade of it. And uh, last Sunday night, after church, I, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, took my loafers off, and I left them on the back porch. Because they were a little dirty when I came in. And I want to keep a happy wife. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I was getting ready to close up the house for the night, and I went out to the back porch, and I saw my loafers sitting there, and I thought, oh, i got to grab those. And I was barefooted, and I, you know, remember thinking, I'll just slip them on and take them into the bedroom. And before God, I remember this, and I remember something stopping me like that as I look back on it. And I bent over... And I bent down, I put my two fingers in the back of my two loafers, and I picked them up to about here. You see where this is going. And I uh, took those loafers, and I thought, well, there's a lot of June bugs. Let me flip those over, just in case there's a June bug in there. And that, uh, that copperhead was in the toe of that shoe, and he literally brushed up against my hand as he fell at my bare feet. Now, the rest of it's all kind of blank for me, i got to tell you. I, uh, I don't know what I said. But I know it wasn't good. Just, I'm being honest. And uh, I've, already, I've already, because I have the habit of seclusion, I've already made that right with my God. Okay? Full disclosure. I don't know what I said. I really don't. I just know it wasn't good. And Connie's in the back bedroom. She comes running out because she thought I'd gotten hurt. And 
I managed to jump in, shut the door as quick as you ever seen anybody move, and that snake crawled right up against the kitchen door. And my tool was outside, so I had to wait literally about five minutes before he moved enough where I could quickly go grab the tool and take his head off. The next slide shows you he was 19 inches long. And that's with the head extended. And I, I just share that story with you to say, you better get ready. Because the devil is going to leave you too till more opportune time. And you can either choose to be ready for him, or you can choose to be bitten by him. And uh, I, I believe that because I had my head in the game, I'm not spending five days in ICU. Uh, you think that's something to laugh at? My doctor told me this week that he had a collie bitten by a copperhead in his garage and he was in ICU for five days. Satan is that serpent and he's not messing around. I hope that we're sobered by the God habit in our life. Lesson learned, don't leave your shoes outside. <laughs> and make sure, first thing every morning, you walk with God. Let us bow as we pray.